Okay. On the line with us today, we have R. Douglas Hurt, the author of Agriculture in the Midwest and that era, 1815 to 1900. Doug, that's, uh, we should say, you're a professor at Purdue, a history professor at uh, Purdue University. And how long did it take you to do this book, Doug? Well, the, um, uh, the writing took about four years, but the research took considerably longer. It's a compilation of uh, much that I've done during the course of my career and the time had come to kind of uh, put it together and uh, flesh in some areas that uh, I hadn't worked on. So it's really a, a compilation of, of, of many years, I would say probably dating back to about uh, 1978. Um, but I didn't work on it uh, consistently, but um, I did um, various things here and there that related to it in terms of technological development and expansion and agricultural policy. So uh, there was an opportunity to um, sort of uh, look at uh, the Midwest uh, in uh, regard to some of these uh, topics and put together a story of uh, uh, the 19th century, at least from the end of the War of 1812 to the turn of the 20th century, which is really a, a time of very uh, rapid and fundamental change in Midwestern agricultural history. And uh, no one had really put together a, um, or had written a, a, a book, a synthetic or uh, a monograph um, over this entire period. And uh, since so very few people know much about agriculture today and even fewer <laughs> people know much about agricultural history i thought this yeah. would be a, a chance to uh, uh to help inform that uh, that knowledge and discussion oh it's it's a fascinating study and, and people might think you got to be kidding me agriculture from this time to that time you know uh, you know they would not know the interest that is there until they open the book because you got me on the very first page because you have the uh, account, and and this is the beauty of your um, your history, your research, and your writing. Um, you've got all these case studies and these uh, folks from the past and what they did and and throughout the area. But Aristarchus Cone arrives in Peoria, our own Peoria here, by steamboat, and takes off to start a farm. And you just sort of document his little um, his quest and. He goes off on foot, and uh, you know, you you think, how can you do this? How can you know? In this day and age, you get off a boat and you wander off, and then he goes up to Rock Island. He goes into Iowa, wherever he what Muscatine County, I guess he settles, finds mm -hmm. land, claims yeah. it, says this is a good. I'll take this, and next thing you know, he's there until 1905 when he dies as a very old man. It's it's yeah. fascinating. I mean. That that's the story you're talking about the the 19th century. Well, this is an age I think of very remarkable men and women, and I thought it was important to um, uh, really focus on individual stories that, to give it some life because these were um, uh, real people that had um, uh, very remarkable experiences, some successful and some not. Uh, the it's not a book that's full of statistics. I don't write that kind of economic <laughs> history. My approach is more of a social and cultural uh, history with um, a sufficient uh, specificity to um, give some meaning to some broad generalization. So I hope it works. I hope people will. I try to write for the general reader 
or right. anyone really that wants to know something about the subject. I, I've always approached my writing that way. If uh, you want to know something about uh, X, Y, or Z that I've written about, you should be able to read it and, and learn something. It shouldn't be uh, dense or it shouldn't be just for specialists or professionals. So I've tried to uh, to reach a broader audience. I, I hope that will be true. Well, I, I think that's a good point because um, I covered agriculture and, and I always said, growing up in Boston and then coming out here to the Midwest and I went to Bradley and then uh, got on the paper here in Peoria. And then when the opening came for as a business reporter, they said, well, you know, you're going to have to cover farm news because at that time they had dropped the farm reporter, which had you know, been a staple of a lot of papers. Yeah. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm about as qualified to cover farming as I am brain <laughs> surgery, you know, because what did I know? I, I was a city kid. I grew up in Boston. And but the, the beauty of it is you find the right people who can explain it to you and then you can explain it to the general public. I think the general public gets left out a lot because it's just what you said. You write for a general audience. We need to know where our food comes from. We need to know why people make the choices they do. Now, I think there's more attention uh, to that now, um, you know, on local food and all these other issues. But you're delving back to an era when all this got started. Tell us about the Preemption Act of 1834, and was it updated in 41? What does that mean to anybody? Because you've got it well, in your book. Yeah. Well, the Preemption Act of 1841 is really the culmination of a long a period in which um, uh, uh, Western, uh, Westering um, uh, migrating men and women really believed that the public a domain uh, was uh, really belonged to to everyone, and the the government really, first of all, shouldn't sell it because it was um, uh, something that uh, everyone should have access to in some fashion. And uh, it was a, a consistent argument first that land should be free, and that's not going to happen uh, for some time. But the problem was that many of these migrating farm men and women got out ahead of uh, surveyors. And they would um, uh, claim a piece of land uh, that they had uh, no right or title to. And the problem was if uh, the land office sold that particular property in big clumps to speculators, uh, they could be simply forced off their land. What they wanted was the right to uh, have the first um, uh, opportunity to purchase that land once it had been surveyed. And uh, it's not the right to settle on that land before it's surveyed, but uh, uh, the government sort of worked around this. And ultimately, uh, there's enough political pressure that Congress agreed in 1841 that if you were on uh, surveyed land, but you hadn't bought it, you had the first right uh, to do so. And you had a limited amount of time. You had to do so within the first uh, 18 uh, or the first uh, 12 months um, uh, and uh, make some improvements and file your papers and, and pay your money. But it gave some protection to would, farm men and women that were would in a way out ahead of the law. <laughs> Doug, is it simplifying to say they legitimized squatters' rights? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. They were squatters, and right. uh, and they had enough in time political pressure to gain the first right to buy the land they squatted on. See, the government had no way to force them off. I mean, 
what are you going to do? Send the army into Illinois <laughs> to drive farmers off of their land? That was just politically impossible and logistically impossible. So this was a way to to uh, sell the land that had been surveyed and get some money for the federal government. I think one of the things that you bring out, we're talking with Doug Hurt, the author of Agriculture in the Midwest, 1815 to 1900. One of the things that you bring out is just what you alluded to there, the speculators, the folks that bought the land. Um, and and then, you know, they bought quite a bit of it. I mean, some of them, you, you tell the stories of individuals that bought large tracts of land and had different approaches to it, because obviously that's that made all the difference for the farmers themselves, the people who bought that land, right? Yeah, that, that's correct. You know, speculators have um, uh, taken a lot of criticism by uh, agricultural historians uh, for generations. My take on this is that, you know, the federal government wanted to sell land and uh, as much of it as possible and as quickly as possible because it needed revenue almost always. And uh, so the land offices were quite happy to sell thousands upon thousands of acres of land to individuals or companies that had the capital rather than maybe 160 acres to one farmer. So it was just it was just administratively easier sure. uh, to do this. But, but the thing is, many of these speculators, uh, the, the criticism about them is that they bought up great tracts of land and denied small scale farmers uh, the right uh, to acquire it. Uh, the the um, speculators, though, really are dividing these lands say, into smaller tracts or smaller farms that uh, farmers could actually afford. And uh, they provided the credit. Uh, now, you had to pay interest, obviously, but it, it provided access to farm men and women to acquire lands that they certainly wouldn't have had the opportunity to do uh, otherwise. So that was beneficial. Right. There, there are some, such as um, William Scully in Illinois, who... Uh, bought um, a, a considerable amount of land, but uh, as an Irish uh, landlord himself, his desire was simply to rent it and gain a consistent income from the, the rent of those lands. So you have speculators that wanted to sell it, and as the population moved into an area, of course, the land values went up, they could charge more, but then you have people like Scully who simply wanted to acquire a vast domain and did, uh, but simply rent it to farmers and, and generate an income that way. So that, there were different approaches. And then you throw in the squatters, and then you uh, toss in the people that actually had capital to buy uh, land from the government, maybe 160 acres or, or more with cash in their pockets. And, and so you have quite a diverse uh, group of people acquiring land in the Midwest. Doug, when you look back on it in this period, and I think it's in your book, uh, the, the weather, obviously, and the soil, uh, are the, are the reasons for this, but I'll ask you anyway. We got the Corn Belt now. Everyone knows about the Corn Belt. Was it a given that corn would take over, or was there a, a can you look back and say, had this happened, had that happened, it might be a very, very different Midwest? Well, um, uh, Native Americans raised corn in this region um, uh, long before a, a white settlement, so it's, it's a region that climatically um, that can support uh, corn agriculture and, and did smaller uh, plots by Native American farmers. Uh, the, the important linkage I think here is, and, and it's a cultural transfer from the Upper South particularly, uh, the early settlers brought um, the hogs with them. 
it's um, uh, a meat on the table, and it's also um, the, the first, uh, really, a commercial um, a commodity that uh, these farm men and women can sell if they had access to a market, particularly downriver, salted pork, smoked pork. Uh, and the easiest way to uh, fatten your hogs, of course, is to um, uh, feed them corn. And so there's a really a very close link from the very beginning. Uh, these farmers knew how to raise corn and they knew how to raise hogs and they brought that culture with them and the Midwest was really ideal for that. And time, the, uh, the corn belt is going to move north uh, based on uh, uh, different varieties that are developed uh, that, that uh, adjust to uh, light and temperature and that. But for the most part across the, the Midwest, uh, the corn varieties that are being planted, and there's some favorites um, uh, among farmers, but it, it's just a, a very close linkage. If you raise corn, you've had hogs. If you had hogs, you need a corn crop. <laughs> Worked out. Uh, you know, we're talking about, uh, we're talking with Doug Hurt on his book, uh, Agriculture in the Midwest in the, in the 19th century. And um, we, we talk about hogs and, you know, I'm a sort of a kid who grew up watching cowboys, cowboys and Indians, I guess. And we always think the horses, you know, the, the the cowboys rode the horses. The horse was really, and probably definitely in the period you write about, was a mainstay on the American farm, wasn't it? I mean, the, you didn't have a farm without a horse, right? Or well, how did that this happen? Was, yeah. Well, this was a chief form of draft power. Um, some of the early settlers, um, uh, evidence they use oxen to plow, but um, the horses were faster. And as technology changes with uh, of plow culture and cultivators and whatnot, whatnot. Uh, um, uh, draft horse breeds, particularly uh, some of the purebreds, they come in a little bit later after the Civil War. But big, strong, uh, graded horses, uh, horses bred for strength and power, uh, are just uh, essential. Because this is a period in which you really see a very remarkable transition from hand power—that is, people using hand tools, axes, and those and spades to horsepower, and then ultimately to steam power. And uh, if you're still alive in 1900, which was certainly possible for many of these farmers, you probably had some indication that gasoline engines were uh, uh, promising to do some of the, this kind of, of draft power, uh, motive power that, uh, that uh, these animals have been providing. But um, most farmers would have one or two horses simply to rotate out. Uh, particularly during uh, uh, spring planting and plowing, fall plowing and whatnot. Sort of a rough um, uh, 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 rule of thumb is you needed about uh, five to seven acres of uh, forage and hay crops to support uh, one horse during the course of the year. So it, it took some acreage uh, away from uh, uh, commercial crops and, and food crops, but uh, you had to have a horse and you had to provide for them. We you uh, mentioned technology there that, that occurred in the period you write about. I noticed in your book there was an interesting, um, interesting sort of fact that in 1889 there were 77 companies in this country that built windmills. And I thought, we, you know, we think of the windmill wind machines today as sort of a modern energy thing. There's nothing new about a windmill, is there? I mean, they, the oh. farmers had them. Yeah. No, and the Midwest is just uh, a remarkable region for. Uh, just a host of windmill manufacturers, and Illinois is really the the, the center of this production uh, 
around the Chicago area and some of the small towns bordering it, uh, capitalizing on railroad transportation, uh, particularly to the West. Uh, it's um, uh, an interesting, innovative period where uh, there are all sorts of experiments on how do you catch the wind most efficiently and adjusting your turbine fan and blades and your pump rods and your uh, 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 speed and and uh, all sorts of differentials. So there are a lot of um, uh, uh, a lot of engineering that uh, went into this, and all of the companies have their preferences, sort of like automotive companies today, and they advertised uh, with all sorts of uh, uh, interesting uh, titles, you know, the Peerless, and and uh, something was uh, the you know the most powerful, the most efficient, and they gave terminologies of various sorts to them. Uh, the market for these windmills basically is the Great Plains and farther west. Uh, but it was a big market while it lasted. And as settlers moved into the plains and uh, as, will, as well drilling technology improved, um, now farmers could buy the windmills and have them shipped and, and people put them up. You know, farmer didn't have to do it himself. He had people that knew how to do this kind of thing, dig a well, dig a well and put up your windmill and tell you how to take care of it. But the, uh, the interesting thing about this is, is that if you bought a windmill, you're probably never going to buy another one in your life. And mm -hmm. so consequently, the market uh, disappeared. <laughs> uh, the more uh, the productive and efficient uh, these companies became. And in time, it sort of just uh, fizzled uh, away. You see um, um, evidence of the past and some abandoned uh, farmsteads, um, even today in the Midwest, but also in, in uh, the Great Plains. They didn't, they didn't catch on to what the automotive industry did, get a new model every year or try <laughs> to right. anyway. That's right. Well, Doug, what were the biggest, you know, and, and I think this is a overly simplistic question, but I'll let you uh, tackle it. What were the biggest challenges for the small farmer in the 19th century? Well, they, uh, I, I think um, the, the problems were simply adjusting to a market economy. Uh, most of these farm men and women that settled are interested in safety first agriculture in the beginning, but uh, they selectively participated in a market economy whenever they could. Uh, so access to um, you know, canals or railroads or good um, uh, multi-service roads to towns and villages gave them an access uh, to market. The, the problem that most of them faced, of course, is, is the problem that farmers face today, and that is an individual can't control prices. Mm -hmm. uh, they're at the mercy of, um, of an, a system, an economy that uh, depends upon world trade, uh, even in the 19th century, uh, certainly no different than today. And so prices increased and fell, and uh, farmers were largely unable to do anything about it. But that, um, of course, gave them reason to voice uh, opposition and discontent uh, uh, in politics. And, and their voices um, had, had some uh, influence, but uh, uh, not as much obviously as they wanted. So I would say there was an, um, an economic problem that they always faced, and, and that hasn't um, it disappeared, to be sure. Uh, farmers have always believed that they should have higher prices than they have. And in many respects, I, I suppose they're correct in all of this. The other would be, I think, um, a matter of technological uh, adaptation. Uh, uh, farmers are sort of wait and see people. 
But uh, during the course of the 19th century, they adopted a remarkable uh, variety of uh, technology to uh, lighten their labors and uh, increase their efficiency. So it's a very adaptive people. Um, e even though they weren't uh, formally educated, uh, they could uh, understand uh, very easily if something was going to be beneficial to them and whether it was worth the investment. And, and so it's a, a time of really substantive uh, technological change. The, the farmer was really ahead of the, uh, well, I don't know about the average citizen, but in spotting things like, well, the technology to the technological changes you you alluded to, right? I mean, they weren't they weren't waiting for, you know, the guys in the city to do stuff. They were doing it on their own. Well, they were, but they were also um, they were a wait and see people. Okay, uh, you know, they would determine whether something was worth the investment, <laughs> whether it would work, whether it was to their advantage, and and um, but. Uh, you can see their interests in all sorts of county fairs and agricultural society fairs where implement companies or inventors in their blacksmith shops would um, uh, demonstrate and, and show their uh, their wares, whether it's a plow or a cultivator, and uh, have a plowing contest and see what worked best or a threshing machine contest and, or a reaper contest. Part of the uh, issue in all of this, though, is that... Uh, much of this technology depended upon other things, uh, such as uh, changes in metallurgy uh, with the Bessemer process and the open hearth process. Uh, then you have um, uh, uh, the ability of um, industrialists to produce steel, which is far superior to wrought iron. And, and this has a multiplier effect on technological development. So there are a lot of linkages here. Doug, one last thing. Um... What about the uh, your next project? You you heading into the twentieth century, or uh, what's your well, what's your I, on your to do list? Well, I'm I'm currently I'm uh, writing an agricultural history of the American Revolution. Ah, I, you're uh, going back further. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah which I I'm, I'm very interested in this project. I've written a book on agriculture in the twentieth uh, century Great Plains. It's the Big Empty, um, uh, which I titled it, uh, but. Um, uh, that's kind of a little bit beyond my definition of the Midwest. I haven't, um, I haven't uh, thought about um, uh, doing a book on 20th century Midwestern agricultural history. There's certainly a need for it. And I've published uh, some articles on the subject, but I haven't, uh, I haven't thought about um, a synthesis or uh, anything like uh, uh, agriculture in the Midwest, uh, 19 uh, or 1850 to 1900. Uh, but it's, uh, I, I guess it's always a possibility. It's one of those uh, to-do projects on the shelf, I guess. But I, I need to uh, get through the American Revolution before I uh, contemplate that. Although I must say, uh, um, I've been invited uh, by Rutledge, which is a, a British publisher, to write a book on famine and world history. So that's probably my project after the American Revolution. Well, it looks like you're going to be keeping busy. Doug Hurd, we thank you so much. The book, again, is Agriculture in the Midwest, 1815 to 1900. Doug, glad we got her in. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time, and good luck on the American Revolution farming. Thank you very much for the invitation. I certainly uh, enjoyed visiting with you. Take care now.